Join Greenbook at the 2024 Insight Innovation Exchange Conference Series. IIEX is your global hub for connections, inspiration, and innovative solutions in market research. Visit greenbook.org events to learn more about events in Asia, the Americas, and Europe. Use the code PODCAST for 20% off general admission on all upcoming events. Hello, everybody. This is Lenny Murphy. Welcome to another edition of the Green Book Podcast. Thank you so much for taking time out of your day to share it with us. And as I always lead in by us, it's not just me here pontificating, having a monologue. We have a guest, a really different type of conversation for you today with a incredibly seasoned and experienced professional in the inside space, Mr. Randall Beard. Randall is an independent director of RSB Advisory, LLC. Welcome, Randall. Lenny, thank you so much for being here. I'm pleased to make your acquaintance once again. <laughs> I appreciate it. And I've, you know, we were chatting a little bit beforehand about having you know, wonderful voices. And man, now the, the more I listen to you speak, the more I'm jealous. I think I've got a decent podcast voice, but you're rocking it, my friend. So you've missed your calling, I think. Well, I already told you about my voiceover audition and how I failed miserably. So I don't, I don't know. We'll spend too much time there. Well, you know, maybe we need to talk about, you know, the Randall Beer podcast. So I'd love that. <laughs> All right. So Randall, you and I, obviously we've chatted before and know each other, but I expect that my audience may not know. So why don't you give us a little bit about your bio and background and this wonderful experience that you have had? Sure. So I'm a senior executive. I currently do board and advisory work full-time, Lenny. I'm on five corporate boards, and I'm also a senior advisor with HIG Capital, private equity firm, and with Bain Consulting. I've been doing this for a couple of years. There are a few red threads that run through all of the different board and advisory roles that I have currently. They're all about digital marketing and media measurement and data and predictive analytics and new product innovation. So before doing this, I had a very long 35-year corporate career. And for simplification, I tend to talk about it in three chapters, a CMO chapter, a data and analytics chapter, and a performance marketing chapter. So the CMO chapter, 25 years in marketing and brand management. I started with Procter & Gamble. I spent 17 years there. I worked in the US, Canada, China, Japan, all over the world. Then moved to American Express. I ran global marketing and product management for one of the business units there for about six years. And then I went to UBS, the big Swiss bank, as the chief marketing officer for their global wealth management business. So I've sat in the CMO seat. You know, I understand their challenges and their opportunities. I've consumed and been a user of tons of consumer research, you know, throughout that period of time. Then I jumped over to chapter two, which I would call data and analytics. I went to work at Nielsen and I did two things at Nielsen. I spent the first six years as the global president of the advertising effectiveness measurement business. So measuring advertising, not only in terms of audiences, which Nielsen is known for, but also brand lift and sales impact across all the different media platforms. And then I spent a couple of years as the global president of the Basies business, which uh, is well known in FMCG circles for new product innovation, prediction, and, and sales forecasting. 
And then the third chapter was performance marketing. I went to work for a 10-year-old Atlanta-based startup called Cardlytics. Cardlytics powers the cashback offers programs for almost all the major banks in the U.S. So they use credit card, debit card data to target individuals based on past purchase behavior, deliver cashback offers through the bank's e-banking channels, and then they do sales lift and incrementality measurement on the back end. So it's a closed loop performance marketing platform. So those are the three big chapters of my career and which then landed me into the world of advisory and board work. All right. So audience, hopefully you've connected those dots or you will more as we go into this conversation, because that is certainly an impressive resume. And you and I first connected when you're in that basis role a few years ago. And I remember chatting again when you went to Cardalytics. So, you know, what I wanted to, to kind of dive into in this conversation today is obviously research as an industry has been experiencing a boom from a capital markets perspective over the last few years. You know, 2021, I think was a hallmark here, right? Just tons of money flowing in more than we've ever seen. Lots of deals flowing, both from a venture standpoint and private equity in 2022, that started to slow down a little bit. And there was a lot of uncertainty, not in the research industry. Well, there was some uncertainty in the research industry market, right? especially Q4. Um, There's a little bit of a slowdown. A lot of folks detected in early Q4 that seemed to resolve itself pretty readily. And as far as we can tell, overall, the industry had a great year, continued growth, et cetera, et cetera. But when I talk to suppliers, particularly in kind of the newer technology-based segment, they don't know how to read where the markets are now. They're not sure what 2023 brings. There is still folks that are laying off, they're right-sizing to whether what is they expect to be some type of financial downturn that has yet to materialize. Doesn't mean it's not going to, but it hasn't happened yet. We still know of lots of conversations that are happening with investors, particularly in private equity and looking at opportunities in the industry. And it's just a weird time. Yeah, Lenny, I think my experience mirrors some of what you just talked about in terms of the industry slowdown. And you know, I have two different vantage points here that I can speak to. So one is as a board member and advisor to companies that are in the consumer research or in the research space generally. The other is as an investor in the work that I do with HIG Capital. So let me speak to the latter first. With HIG, I work with them as across a variety of funds, including their growth equity fund, which focuses on smaller high growth companies around identifying investment opportunities, including in the research space, and then working with them throughout the due diligence process up until the point where they actually make an investment. So Suzy would be a good example of that, where they led the Series D around investment. What I've generally seen from that side is a couple of things. One is the market definitely slowed down pretty considerably starting last spring, early summer, and was really slow through the summer and the fall. And then it started picking up again here in the first quarter. So I definitely saw like a six-month dip there just in terms of opportunities presenting themselves as companies were looking for investment or exits or you know, potential acquire. On the HIG side, I would say the big thing that I've seen from an investor point of view is a lot more emphasis on the durability of the business, particularly a lot more focus around not just top line 
revenue growth or ARR growth, but a lot of focus on net revenue retention, logo retention, really understanding whether or not the value proposition is such that this business is a durable long-term investment that has some kind of real moat or advantage to it. That has become a lot more important. So growth for growth's sake, less important durability and demonstrable proof that the value proposition is really meaningful to the client has become a lot more important. On the advisory board side, the companies I work with are all continuing to grow quite rapidly and didn't slow down at all during the last six months. Now, that could just be an artifact of the companies I work with have advantage and are doing well, even in a slower market. But I would say overall, you know, my experience, especially on the investment side, is very similar to what you described, Lenny. And as I think about the companies that I work with as well, certainly the funnel has continued to grow overall. Maybe some slowdown in some cases from some of the explosion of growth in 2020, which obviously was driven by, you know, circumstance. But there's been a very long tail of growth in many of the companies that are they're digitally first overall and offering those solutions. So I think that's good. A concern that I know a lot of folks have, though, is as that tightening perspective that you mentioned, right? A focus on durability, on you know the long-term strength of the, the business, that has also obviously uh, hit valuations. So, you know, there's recent deals that we saw at the end of last year materialized that didn't have the valuations that they would have gotten, you know, six months or even a year before. And maybe that explains that slowdown of opportunity for private equity. I know a lot of founders have decided to sit and wait. There's one in particular, a company that I've worked with for a long time. They're a great company. They've had massive growth. And the founder, the CEO has decided, we're doing fine. I'm going to wait this out. So even though there's been a constant stream of knocks on the door from private equity, you know, hey, (laughs) let's talk. And he keeps pushing them back saying, no, let's get through this next wave of things, you know, two or three years from now, we'll see. Because I'm not going to settle for a 5x multiplier. I think my company is a 12x. And that's what they're going to sit on and wait for. How does that affect from, is private equity, they have dry powder, they want to put that dry powder to work. How do they navigate that type of dynamic where founders are saying, eh, you know, I'm okay and I don't want to settle. You know, we're going to wait until we have more leverage from a valuation standpoint. I have no experience on that side of things, obviously. So anything you can share about that particular permutation of these times that we're in, of that balance between, sorry, I'll try and get my question more precise. That balance between private equity wanting to work and put their money to work and founders saying, I'm going to wait because my job is to get the best valuation I can. And I think that'll happen in six months or a year versus today. Well, the first thing I would say is I would just remind the audience that there is still a ton of money, a lot of dry powder out there. So there's no shortage of money, whether it's in private equity or, or elsewhere, or, you know, to, to be invested. And I think what's happening is the valuations have come down. As you said, there's no question about that. But I think there's a lot more focus on certain things about the business, and there is a willingness to pay 
a very high multiple if there are certain conditions that are met. Some of those I talked about before, but other things are things like how important is the need that the business is serving and how unmet is that in the market today? To what degree is the business a SaaS or DAS business with predictable recurring high margin revenue? You know, to what degree is it technology enabled and if they leveraged automation and you know do it yourself or do it yourself assist for cost advantages predictive analytics is super important and becoming more so and i talked earlier about you know moats or competitive advantage like what really is the competitive advantage and sometimes it's really obvious it could be vertical integration it could be you know something else there's one company i work with where they're in the research industry but they're really a tech firm and in a way that's a big advantage because having worked in a big company like Nielsen, and I say this with all due respect to Nielsen, Nielsen is not a tech company. They don't operate that way. They don't think that way. That's not what they have been or are. But you know, coming into the industry as more of a technology-first orientation and platform could be a real advantage. And the last thing I would say investors are looking for is the business in a space that there are very natural tailwinds behind it. So for example, I think the world of companies that are making physical products are going to only continue to use agile methods more and more in the future, whether that's for product innovation, marketing plan development, or you know, in-flight optimization of marketing and sales activities. And so companies that, that naturally serve that space and enable agility across those areas, they're operating with a tailwind at their back. So those are some of the other considerations that I think investors are looking at and saying, is this really a business that I'm willing to pay a 10 times revenue multiple for? Because they're you know, checking a lot of these boxes and they have the financial profile and metrics I talked about earlier to still be very attractive at high valuations. All right. So the industry obviously has continued to grow. It has shifted primarily from a service-led to a technology-led industry. and as you said, all those things are attractive. Are there warning signs? Are there some things that the investment community is looking at for this industry and saying, hmm, I don't know, there's some potential disruption here that could negatively impact that growth and durability of these companies? Anything that you're hearing or seeing? Yeah, I think there's a few things. I think one of them is what you mentioned earlier, which is consolidation in the industry. I mean, if you think about it from a client perspective, they want simplicity and ease of use. And so it's not infrequent that you'll come across an application or a tool that is really cool and interesting, but it's very much a single point solution. And I really do think over time, what's going to happen is there's going to be more consolidation to players having end-to-end consumer research tools across all the main areas of consumer research. You know, it's better for clients, ease of use, simplicity. It's also better for investors, if you think about it, right? Because you've got scale and cost advantages when you when you do the consolidation. So that's one thing. I think there's another thing that I see, which is various, I'll call it integration of different tools and technologies across areas that maybe people thought about as being, you know, different in the past. Let's give you one example. Like, so there's, you know, obviously many consumer research tools that are used in tracking in market performance of brands. 
over here on the side, you've got this other business, market mix modeling, right, which is trying to understand the impact of marketing and other elements on business results. And, you know, I would argue that over time, these things are going to become more integrated, right? And so I think as investors are looking at these businesses, they're not just looking at them in silos, they're looking at them and saying, are there adjacent capabilities or categories of business that are going to start to impinge on these spaces? And what is the risk involved in that? Or what is the opportunity involved in that as well? Well, it reminds me of the, I'm sure you remember the time when at first it was, okay, online surveys are going to destroy the market research industry, DIY particularly. Well, no, that didn't happen. It just accelerated growth. And then social media analytics, it's going to replace market research. Well, no, it it didn't. It became an augmentation. And then big data analytics, that's going to you know, do away with the need to even ask questions. Well, we haven't gotten there yet. You know, we've seen these times where there were disruptive technologies that actually became part of the toolkit to an extent within this broadening scope of insights and analytics is how I think about it nowadays. It's not market research. Market research is a subcategory of this broader piece. But then along came generative AI, right, at the end of last year, right? Things like chat, GPT. And those do seem, that technology, that class technology does seem to potentially have the opportunity to be incredibly disruptive. What's the buzz on your side of the table in thinking about the impact of of that new class of technology that it's inherently data-driven? It does replace, potentially, a lot of the human elements or even analytical models that the industry has traditionally relied upon. So AI has gone through a huge hype cycle. And even when it was on the downwards of the hype, if you will, I've always been a big believer that whether it's machine learning, more advanced methods of AI, or or now generative AI, they are going to only get bigger and more powerful with broader use cases over time. There's no doubt in my mind that that's going to happen. I think what I've seen from generative AI, one is almost more on the creative side, right? Which is how can you use generative AI to create marketing assets and capabilities in a more automated, speedy way than the traditional use of creatives and that process? I've also seen a bunch of work around generative AI as being almost like an overlay to consumer research and analytics and able to guide individuals through and across those various data sets in getting to the right answer or the right next step faster, easier, which I think is really interesting. So honestly, I think we're only limited right now by our own creativity in in terms of, of the applications. The thing I know for sure is various forms of AI are only going to become much, much more important in this space going forward. Yeah, agreed. Absolutely. And we're already seeing that, right? I mean, we're recording this in the end of February and that announcement about the release chat GPT in in November, I mean, the explosion of innovation we've already seen. And, you know, Lenny, just to go back to a point we talked about earlier about consolidation and you know, different methods and and so forth. I mean, think about a space like CX, right? So you've got customer experience and you've got the traditional survey-based research platforms that measure CX. But then you've got all these other, you know, you've got ratings and reviews, you've got 
you know, social, you've got all these other data sets, and they're not really integrated in an organized way today. And there are some companies in the space that are moving in that direction. I mean, they recognize that. But if you step back and you say, like, I'm a client, I want to manage my customer experience and optimize the activities and behaviors of my organization to improve experience and drive better results, you don't want five different tools that are measuring all these different things. You want you may have five different methods that you're using, but you want an integrated whole in terms of how to bring all these things together in a smart way. And I think there's a lot of potential for generative AI for things like that. Agreed. There's companies out there we already see that play in that knowledge management space that had built their businesses around curating information, often very categorically and systemically. And now they're rushing towards, well, now we have this new technology that it can be messy. <laughs> you know, we don't have to necessarily synthesize these things at the data level, which is very challenging. But instead, just point the AI in the right direction and it can do the synthesis overall. And that, that's pretty exciting to see some of those things rapidly emerge overall. One of the things that excites me too is when I think about the consumer research part of this space, and you rightly pointed out that you think about this more broadly than just consumer research. But if I think about consumer research historically, most consumer research really couldn't easily be connected to decisions that led to better business outcomes. And you had services like Basie's, there were some copy testing tools that were validated to in-market business results, but really they were few and far between. And I think that there's a big opportunity in the industry to do a better job of connecting consumer research insights to then decisions that lead to better outcomes in a much more direct and responsive way. And again, I'm, I'm hopeful that some of these new capabilities like ChatGPT and others can actually enable some of those things to happen. Yeah, I agree wholeheartedly. I think that end state that we've all been visualizing, right, of, you know, single source, end-to-end -end attribution, you know, those type of ideas that have been very difficult to pull off, we're a hell of a lot closer now, just through the ability to bypass the need to structure data to make it possible to analyze. And I think that's the real point of the generative AI, is that it evades that need for us to look at the data being in a very specific structure. That's amazingly helpful. So what has you excited, Randall? If you think about, and you feel free to name names if you want, or just think about examples, but you look at the marketplace right now and you think, okay, this is pretty cool. This is either a trend or a company to watch. Yeah, there's a few I could talk about. We've already talked about Suzy. I think they're doing some great things. They're very much in more of the traditional market research space. One of the companies I'm involved in right now is called Keen Decision Systems. And having worked in Nielsen, I know the market mix modeling world, you know, quite well. And the challenges thereof, which are, you know, really expensive, you know, backward looking report cards and pretty slow, right? And I've always been a huge believer in, you know, marketing is all about driving higher brand valuations and better business outcomes. And if you're doing marketing that's not doing those things at the end of the day, you know, you shouldn't be doing it. What I love about Keen is that they've taken a traditionally managed service business and moved it into a SaaS model where it's always on. You know, you can go in today and look at your results from the past, or you can go in tomorrow 
or the next day or any day you want. And you can look and see how, you know, every various element of your marketing plan or other activities that you're doing are performing. And because it's SaaS and it's DIY, it's about half the price of traditional marketing mix. So the 80% of brands who traditionally just don't use marketing mix because it's so expensive, suddenly it becomes affordable, which is great. The thing that I like about it the best, though, is it's very much focused on forward-looking simulation. You know, I used to have a boss, Lenny, that used to say to me, Randall, that's great, but the emphasis is on the wrong syllable. And, you know, looking backward all the time, the emphasis is on the wrong syllable. Marketing, what it really should be about is like, what do I need to do differently in the future to achieve my business goal or do better? And so the whole platform is very focused on forward-looking simulation. So I'm really excited about that because I think it brings new capabilities to more brands in the marketplace and does more of what the marketer should be doing, which is focusing on what are the things I should be doing to achieve the business outcome I'm looking to achieve. So I really like that. The other company, it's it's much earlier stage I'm working with right now is Humantel. They're interesting for a couple of reasons. They're a combination of, on the one hand, well, let me, let me just back up for a second. What Humantel is, is a set of collectives. And collectives are made up of individual companies that all have interest in the same space. So it might be sports. So you can imagine 12 different companies in the collective. They all are interested in sports, but they all have a different angle on it. You could be the NBA. You could be a sports betting company. You could be ESPN. They all are about sports, but they all look at it through a different lens. So what does Humantel do? It does two things. One is the collective members individually come together and with the assistance of a collective manager from Humantel, build an annual research plan of monthly research about things that they want to learn about collectively. And so it has all the benefits of syndicated research, but without the cost of proprietary custom research. You're effectively getting 10 times the research at the cost of what you would have done one study with. The other part of it, which is equally interesting, and I think in some ways more important, is the wisdom of the collective, is being able to work with these other people who all have a shared space, in this case sports, in our example, but have different worldviews. And so you can learn from people that are working in your space with a very different view from your own and benefit from their wisdom and insight. And that's just as powerful as I think is the, the research component. So very early stage, we're looking for advisors and investors. So if anyone in the audience is interested in that, you can certainly reach out to me, but quite excited about it. Now that's interesting because I hear that and I hear qualitative. It's a very human-centric, I guess that's the name, right? Human tell. <laughs> human-centric approach for collective value generation. I don't hear much technology in that. So it's interesting that you're excited about that one when everything else you've been talking about has been more you know, technology-driven overall. Well, it resides on a technology platform that enables all of this, which I, I didn't talk about. So there is that element of it. But let me say it a little bit differently. Lenny, you probably, like me, have been involved in organizations that bring together people from you know a certain discipline. And I'm thinking here of like when I was a CMO, I was part of an organization that brought top CMOs together a couple times a year, right? And so I would meet with these CMOs and you know at the end of the day, I'd say like, what did I learn from that that I can go apply in my business? And generally the answer was not very much. <laughs> and so as opposed to organizing people functionally, 
you know, we're thinking about it more from what business are you in? You're in the business of sports. Okay. If you're in the business of sports, then, you know, what insights can you glean from other people that are in that business as well? So yeah, look, everything doesn't have to be tech first. I think having a tech infrastructure that enables that kind of thing is really valuable. Yeah, it's, it reminds me of an anecdote. One of the, the most interesting talks I ever heard from somebody in our industry was the insights leader for a casket company. And actually, I forget her name, which makes me feel sad because it was so cool that I can't believe I forgot her name. But anyway, what, what the hell market research does a casket company need to make? The point was that they looked at so many other categories for signals that could impact overall trends. For instance, as luxury car sales increased, they would increase production of luxury caskets. They would look at cup sizes as folks in quick serve casual dining, as they upsized the cups, then they thought, well, there's going to be bigger people. So we need to make bigger caskets. And it was just such an, an interesting approach to look at different signals outside of their lane. And that's what I hear you talking about. And that approach really did drive their entire production model or these other signals outside. If they hadn't have done those things, they would have just still been making pie boxes. I love that phrase, you know, signals outside your lane. I think that is a great way to think about it which is really interesting. I'm also a really big fan of looking at technologies that are completely unrelated to the thing that I'm doing and just find interesting things that are going on and try to think about like, you know, what application, if any, might that have for things that I'm involved in? I'll give you one example. I'm a big cyclist. So I mountain bike, I road bike. I've been doing this for, you know, decades. So I live in the New York metro area. So in the winter time, it's pretty cold. So I signed up for Zwift and got a smart trainer. And so I'm Zwift is, a, if, if you don't know it for your audience, it's basically a virtual cycling world, right? So you're on your bike. It's a smart trainer. So you're looking at a screen. You're in a simulated world. People are passing you by. You're on the side of the road. And you start pedaling and you start catching up to people. And then you can pass them. They can pass you. You can go faster and you can talk to people if you want. You can schedule rides. It's completely gamified, right? You, so they have simulated worlds for like New York and London as well as a completely made up world. But the London route goes through London and around London. Every time I ride it, it rains. But, you know, when you get to the base of this one hill that you go up outside of London, you know, the screen shows you the times it took you to get from that point to the top the last 10 times you rode the loop. And it shows your ETA. And as you ride harder, you know, you start moving up the ranking, right? So when people talk about the metaverse, right, I'm not so big a fan of like the idea of a general metaverse. Here's an application of the metaverse where there's a very real need that's being met. My need is I want to cycle and have fun doing it in the wintertime when it's snowing outside or rainy and slushy. Well, I can go into this, you know, virtual world and do this in my house. And it's really cool. It's really interesting. But then you start thinking, well, what are the consumer research applications of that? Could there be consumer research applications? Could you do advertising testing in that? You could have a group that sees ads, a group that doesn't see ads. You could, there's all kinds of interesting things that you could do. So I like to just find sort of different technologies and begin to think about 
like what if any are the applications or ramifications for other spaces I'm in? It's a little bit of a different take on the signal outside your lane, but it's the same idea of finding things that are outside what you're doing that still might have inside application. Yeah, totally agree. Uh, I was one of the first group with Google Glass. And now I actually end up hating it, but that was because of the form factor. So those who don't know, I wear glasses. And the only way I could use Google Glass was to wear contacts. I hate wearing contacts. It's, I'm not good at it. It's, you know, it's a process I really just dislike poking my finger in my eye, all that good stuff. So point is, but I saw the potential utility down the road. Now, it's interesting to think about that entire category, AR, VR, the metaverse, et cetera, et cetera. I agree with you that we will see those applications, but they are so limited at this point by that they're expensive. They have slow uptake, slow adoption. Uh, no one has cracked, just like gamification and research, it's not scalable. It's not easily scalable. Everything is custom, right? So that's one of the lenses that I use in thinking about these things. So this is a cool technology, but how do you scale this? And things like that, I remain interested, but skeptical because I don't see the path of widespread adoption for all the reasons I just rattled off. What do you think? I think that's fair. I think if we're talking about, just to take my example, I think there has to be a real consumer need for people to do something that they can't easily do today that's really important to them. Like for me, it's like, I want to bike in the wintertime. I can't easily do that. I mean, I can, but it's really uncomfortable, even with all my winter clothing and everything, to do it outside. And Zwift meets that need, right? And does a really good job of it. So I think, you know, it all comes back to like, you know, is there a really important consumer need? And then to your point, is there the delivery mechanism that really makes it work in a way that people go like, yeah, I like this. I'm going to come back and do it over and over and over again. And you know, I, I could argue that some of the VR, AR stuff, you know, there's been needs there, but like the delivery mechanism has been suboptimal to date. And until that's addressed, you're not going to see the large scale uptake of, of these kinds of things. By the way, I, I just want to make an important point here, which maybe is obvious, but so many times in my career, I've seen companies or people have really cool, interesting ideas, but they're subscale. And as a marketer, like if you're a CMO or you're a general manager of a business, you don't have time for hobbies, right? You want to do things that can have a really sizable impact on your business. And so really cool ideas that are subscale and yes, they're really cool, but you know, they only reach 4% of the population just, you know, aren't really that interesting at, at the end of the day. So I think your point's really well taken because scale matters. No, that's a great point. Yeah, building a niche business that can build value, that's one thing. But let's both have to be realistic. That's a niche business. So that effectively is a lifestyle business. And it may be a good size lifestyle business, but that's all it's going to be. And let's just recognize that. So overall, on that note, and I want to be conscious of your time and some of our listeners, is there any advice that you would give to founders out there? Folks that are still, you know, they've got some traction, you know, companies are doing well, they're looking for growth but they may not be sure exactly where to go from here. Just any words of wisdom or experience you would lay on them? Wow, that's a tough one. There have been books written about <laughs> such things, Lenny. So <laughs> look, in my experience, I think I'm going to say what many people have probably seen before, but I think more often than not, a founder has a vision of something and the end successful business 
ends up being different than what they started with. And I think what is really critically important is being flexible and open to market feedback and adjusting or zigging and zagging, you know, to the market to find the right fit for what it is that you're doing. And there's so many examples of founders that started with something and ended up with something quite different that was hugely successful. But had they stayed on the original track where they started, they wouldn't have gotten there. So I just think flexibility and the willingness to zig and zag and and listen to the market and adjust accordingly is probably the single most important piece of advice I would have for a founder. Yeah, uh, and good advice. I saw a presentation years ago where somebody, the company I was working with, an advisory role, that pivoted and they did a whole presentation on the courage to pivot and certainly been important in my life on every level as well. So I totally get it. Randall, this has been really great. I hope that we have a chance to have you come back and talk more about some of these ideas and others. Where can people find you? Yeah, easiest thing to do is reach me on email, beardrandalls at gmail.com. Beardrandalls at gmail.com. Just drop me a note if you would like to talk about any and everything. Okay. And of course, you're also on LinkedIn. Absolutely. On LinkedIn as well. That's right. Either place. All right. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you to our audience for your time, uh, because without you, Randall and I would just be having a cool chat, but no one else would get any value out of it. And hopefully you have gotten value out of this conversation. A big shout out to our producer, Natalie, who makes all of this happen. Our editor, James Carlisle, who makes it sound brilliant to you when we screw up during these talks, which always happens at some point or the other. And shout out to our sponsors. That's it for this edition of the Reboot Podcast. We'll be back again very soon. Thanks a lot. Bye-bye. Join Greenbook for the 2024 Insight Innovation Exchange. This global conference series, also known as IIEX, is where connections are made, inspiration is found, and innovative solutions are discovered. With more than 90% of attendees using IIEX Insights to shape strategic business decisions, the return on investment is undeniable. Whether you're in Asia-Pacific, North America, Europe, or Latin America, IIEX is your gateway to the latest market research best practices, tech innovation, and strategies for transporting insights into action. Nurture your career and business with insights from across the globe. And here's a bonus. Use the special code PODCAST to save 20% on general admission for all IIEX events. Visit greenbook.org events today to learn more and register. See you there.